Are there any baseball fans out here? All right. All right, good. He raised his voice. He must be beyond a fan, probably a fanatic, right? Right, right. Well, I'm not much of a baseball fan, I have to confess. I think the game is too slow for me. Um, It's a game of strategy, after all. It's, you know, baseball's a lot like um, curling, you know. You can... um, Good, good, good sport to fall asleep at. Um, yes, please, if you would, please. Thanks. But you know, that's me. That's not. That's not really baseball. It's it's a game of great skill, great strategy, and and I especially am uh, amazed at baseball pitchers. You think about it. They're 60 feet away. They they throw a a ball in the very tiny strike zone, and they have to throw it accurately, and they have the ability to put it where they want, and they do that to deceive the batters. And it takes only a half a second for a major league pitcher to let go of the ball before it arrives at the plate. A half a second. The batter has to stand there and see the ball, watch it go, and and make a judgment in that half second about, am I going to swing or not? How am I going to swing? Where is the ball going to be? It's amazing. And they can't really make that judgment in that uh, quick period of time. And so, you know, mostly they are working on reflex. They have seen thousands of pitches. They make a judgment internally, and they swing or they don't swing based on that judgment. So what if the pitcher throws a curveball? Curveball is kind of an interesting pitch. I don't know how you do it. Something about the way you spin the ball or don't spin it. But the pitcher lets go of the ball. The ball looks like any other pitch. It's coming towards the batter. The batter decides to swing. He takes a mighty cut, and the ball moves. It moves out of the way, and he misses. That must be frustrating. Imagine how frustrating it would be. The ball veers right out of you. You're all lined up. You're about to take a mighty cut. You're imagining a home run. The ball goes out of the way, and you get, you know, it's a strike. I kind of feel like Grace Church has been throwing a curveball. Last Sunday, Pastor David said goodbye, and before that, I had David's life pretty well mapped out. I did. I, I figured he was going to be here another five, ten years, preaching every Sunday, you know, and, um, but the ball moved, didn't it? The ball moved unexpectedly. And here we are today. This is the week 1 AD, after David. And so the question is, what do we do now? Where does that leave our church? What's God's plan for us? And don't you imagine that the disciples must have felt the same way? I mean, as you read the gospel accounts of the disciples' last days with Jesus, especially when you see the triumphal entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem, they thought for sure he was the Messiah. They had decided pretty much that he was the Messiah. They knew the Messiah, according to all the things that they had heard and read, was going to throw out the Romans, was going to usher in the kingdom of God forever, make Israel prominent in the world, bring God's justice and glory and righteousness and goodness back to earth. And they were ready. They were already vying with each other for who was going to take what position in the kingdom of God, in this new kingdom that Jesus was going to usher in. And then, imagine how confused and disillusioned they were when They saw him dragged off to the cross and crucified and his body thrown into a a tomb. 
They were throwing a curveball. We don't really have to imagine how they felt, actually. The Gospels are pretty clear about it. They were terrified. They thought for sure they were going to be next, and so they went into hiding. They were rock stars for a while. They were rock stars going around basking in the light of Jesus. And then suddenly they were nothing. They were nothing. They were wanted men. And fortunately, as we know, that's not how the story ended for them. We don't know how the story is going to end for David and Teresa, but we do know that God is good and God has them both in his hands and God is providing a future for them, a good future for them. And we don't know what the future is for God's church here, for Grace Community Church, but we know that we serve a good God, a God who loves us, a God who is here today with us, and a God who will provide for us and give us a, has laying out a good plan for us, despite what we think is a curveball. Before he went to the cross, Jesus knew a lot of things were going to happen to the disciples that uh, they weren't going to be able to handle. And he tried to prepare them for that. He tried to prepare them for the uncertainties and the difficulties and the struggles, the surprises, the trials that he knew that they were going to face. And in that preparation, in the things that he said to them in the very last night, the very last night as he was talking to them before he was arrested, He gave them one word, one word to remember, to keep returning to, no matter how long, how how many curves life threw at them, and that word is abide. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. There are a lot of life-changing circumstances, crossroads in our lives, right? Uh, We get married. That's a pretty big one. Uh, We take a new job someplace. That's a pretty big one. We decide what church we're going to uh, join. That's a pretty big decision, a very significant decision in our lives, what career path to make. But as I read today's passage, I think Jesus would argue that the most significant decision you and I can make in life is decide who or what we're going to anchor our hearts and our minds and our souls to. The most important decision you can make is who or what you're going to anchor your hearts, your minds, your souls to. Which reminds me of the great philosopher of our day, Bob Dylan. He wrote this. You may be an ambassador for England and France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Somebody. Yeah. Not my best Dylan voice, but I've got a cold, so. And pretty much any voice you do for Dylan, you know, is kind of a compliment, right? So, But a... A better-known prophet from the Old Testament said this. Joshua, Joshua 24:15 says, Choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. That's the choice we have to make. So let me tell you a story. It took me a long time to figure out what I was going to do in my life. I started college and dabbled in a lot of different things before I finally figured out that 
Computers and engineering were the thing that really resonated with me. This was in the early 1970s when computers were still fairly big and fairly expensive. There were no smartphones in those days, no uh, laptops. So I went to work for a manufacturing company in North Carolina, um, and I rented an apartment, and I was single, and I began to plan out my life around a good job and decent pay, decent money, and enough free time to go sailing around the Outer Banks on the weekends with a good friend of mine. And then in 1977, the fall of 1977, I met Kathy Bridges, and I got into really deep trouble <laughs> because I fell in love. And strangely, she fell in love with me too. And so we started talking about marriage and making a future together, you know, those things that you do. But there was a serious hitch. Kathy didn't share my good ideas about, you know, living the good life in North Carolina, a good job, lots of money, lots of leisure time sailing around the Outer Banks. For most of her life, Kathy had heard God calling her to be a missionary, a missionary in some distant place where she could be a witness to God's love. And so that was what she was preparing to do with her life. Now, I thought I was a pretty good Christian. I was a leader in my youth ministry at my church. I sang in a Christian rock band, and we performed around the, the state, you know. And, but I also thought there, certain, there ought to be certain limits to what God should ask you to do, certain reasonable things and certain unreasonable things that God might ask you to do. And um, the idea of giving up everything that I loved and everything that I had prepared myself for, everything I was comfortable with, and going to live in some God-forsaken country someplace else was terrifying. It was terrifying. And it just seemed like an unreasonable thing that God would not really ask me to do. And it was so far out of my own comfort zone that it literally just sent me into a panic. What am I going to do, and what does this mean for our relationship? So I tried bargaining with Kathy, and that didn't seem to work. I tried bargaining with God, and I prayed like I never prayed before. I searched the Bible for answers. I talked with pastors and trusted friends to see if they thought this was a crazy idea. And ultimately, as I listened and as I prayed, my panic began to subside somewhat, and God gave me peace. And it wasn't really the peace that says, um, I'm going to knock some sense into Kathy, don't worry about it. <laughs> it was peace that says, I can trust, you can trust me. Peace about getting married, Peace about quitting my job, peace about joining Wycliffe Bible Translators, peace about moving to Mexico City, which was weird because I just, it was beyond my imagination. And I guess the reason that I felt peace was that I realized, and this is the important thing here, that I could trust God with much bigger things than I had ever tried trusting Him with before, and He would come through because He's God. I had peace, but that doesn't mean everything was okay. I was still way out of my comfort zone. I mean, I was an engineer, so okay. I had built my life around predictability and planning and making things happen on my own terms and control, lots of control over everything. And my faith in God, in God was contingent on the assumption that God wouldn't ask me to do anything really crazy. God wouldn't pitch any curveballs. And going to Mexico seemed crazy, but after a bunch of sleepless nights, I finally said, okay, God, I believe you want this. I believe you can help me do this. 
And so in June of 1978, Kathy and I got married, and we picked up all of our belongings. We said goodbye to our family and friends, and we moved to Mexico City, one of the largest cities of the world. Mexico took a lot of getting used to. But being there as a young married couple was an adventure. It was a, it was a God venture. My fears quickly went away, and I found that I really loved it there, that God was doing something pretty cool there with us and in us. I loved the friendliness and the generosity of people there. I loved the deep commitments that they've made to family and to faith. By the way, in this picture here, um, some of you know Fred and Pam Tuggy. Uh, that's their youngest daughter, Grace, right there. We were good friends then, still are. And at the same time, in doing this, I was with people who took their faith far more seriously than I ever had. I began to realize that. I began to see a difference between them and me, their walk of faith and my walk of faith. And it got me to examining myself. It got me to thinking about myself. There's a real computer right there. <laughs> this, this is not a real computer. It doesn't have whirring tapes and things like that. Well, So one day... While I was there, I met this man named Ken Jacobs. Ken and his wife Elaine were translating the Bible for a group of people who spoke a language called Sotzil. And these people were part of a community that had very, very strong traditional beliefs. In fact, they were rooted in the Mayan, ancient Mayan practices of the Mayan gods, and they worshipped those Mayan gods. The good news was reaching into their communities, and it was causing an upheaval. It was causing lots of conflict. Um, the Christians were being seen as disloyal to the traditional ways, disloyal to the community by turning away from the old gods and worshiping Christ. Um, they began to blame things like weather problems and crop failures and things on the fact that the Christians were being um, disobedient to the gods, the ancient gods. And so the traditionalists banded together and expelled the believers from the community. And so they had to make an awful choice then. They could either reject Jesus and they could stay in their homeland or they could accept Jesus and lose their families, lose their homes, lose the place they grew up with, be forced to leave. And many of them chose to leave their homes. And these exiled Christians were welcomed into churches in the surrounding towns. They helped each other and they prayed for each other and they worshiped together, much like you see in the book of Acts. In fact, it was a very similar situation. The early Christians were exiles from the Jewish community. And these Christians gathered together in much the same way and supported each other in a new place. They made a new home for themselves in a new place and they rooted themselves in Christ and his church and they learned how to abide, how to abide in Christ, how to abide in each other. John the Apostle, in his gospel, in about four chapters, chapters 13 through 17, talks about, well, lays out all the things Jesus said to the apostles, to the disciples, on the very night when he was betrayed. He knew that they were going to be tested. He knew they would feel lost and confused without his leadership. He tried to prepare them. And so what we're going to do today is look at a portion of that message that he gave to them. It's a message about grapevines and grapes and abiding. And it's a challenge to surrender to God and to choose who we're going to serve. And the big idea we're going to look at today is this. The key to living in Christ is to abide, to push the fibers of your faith deep into the vine and never let go. The key 
The key to living in Christ is to abide, to push the fibers of your faith deep into the vine and never let go. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, John chapter 15, verse 1, or you can turn and go to mygrace.church where you'll find the scripture laid out for you and it's also going to be here on the screen. And pardon me while I blow my nose. I should have warned him to mute the microphone, shouldn't I? John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Now this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts down every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me. And I will remain in you, for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is teaching, obviously, through a metaphor here. And there's a lot of ways that we can interpret this, and I don't claim to have the only way. Uh, in fact, I would really encourage you to spend some time this week going through this passage and the ones surrounding it in your own t- private time of study and see just how God speaks to you about this idea of Jesus being the vine and abiding in Christ and what it means. But I want to look at a few little things that stand out to me this morning as we, as we take a look at this passage and try to unpack what it means. Usually, in the teachings of Jesus, he talks about, he shares parables, let's say, about things like the the nature of the kingdom of God, the nature of God himself, the nature of faith. And he uses all sorts of things. He talks about sheep, he talks about goats, he talks about wheat, he talks about yeast. This is one of the few times where he actually talks about himself, where he really talks about himself in the middle of the image that he's giving. And he says, I am a grapevine. I am a grapevine. Now, I don't know much about horticulture. Has anybody here ever grown grapes? Anybody had the experience? Nope, doesn't look like it. Or you're too shy to say so. Oh, Jeff. All right, good, good, cool. Um, but I know enough to know that, you know, from my, my uh, seventh grade biology classes or whatever, that um, there's this really miraculous thing that happens where the roots of a plant go down into the soil and draw up liquid and nutrients through the cells of the plant, up through the, the, the stalk of the plant, to the branches, and that, that produces great blossoms and leaves and fruit. It's true of every ordinary grapevine that this happens. So what about Jesus? When, when Jesus calls himself a vine, God's vine, what does that mean in some spiritual sense? He's not a literal plant, so what does that really mean? And I think it means that If we fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is just a great teacher, an interesting prophet, a man with a lot of cool things to say, that we sort of miss the point that Jesus is life. He is the giver of life. He is the author of life, as I said a few weeks ago in another sermon. Um, It says to me that Jesus is real life. And by calling himself a grapevine, he's saying, I am the source of life. Then he says, 
I am the true grapevine, the true grapevine. I'm the real deal. Now, in many places in the Old Testament, as you read it, God uses the same image of a grapevine to talk about Israel. He talks about Israel as being there, his, um, his treasured vine that he's planting and nourishing and taking good care of. And I think um, up to this point, Israel thought of itself as something special, something living that God was tending, and rightfully so. But here, when Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, I think that maybe the disciples would have begun to think that Jesus was saying, I'm taking the place of Israel. God is now doing something new through me. God is revealing himself in a new way through me. I am now the vine that God is caring for. I am the one who will be the light to the world. Formerly, Israel was God's light, God's example of his blessing to the world. And now Christ himself was going to be. The true vine idea probably would have reminded them of this passage in Isaiah 11. It says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a vine or a plant, a shoot coming up out of the dead stump of Jesse, the father of David. And Jesus is reiterating that by saying, I'm here. I am God's true vine. And if Jesus is the true vine, does that mean they're counterfeit vines? Does that mean they're vines pretending to have life, pretending to have truth, pretending that we should invest ourselves in them, that we should abide in them, and that they will reward us with real life? Well, I think so, yeah, I think so. Um, I was reading the other day about um, this category of people that are called the nuns. It's just a way of saying that uh, there are a group of people, a large growing group of people in the world today, especially in the United States culture, that say, I do not have any religious faith. I do not believe in God. I don't go to church. I don't have any religious faith. I'm a nun. And what's interesting is they've studied the nuns is that sort of like corresponding with a walk away from faith, at the same time, there is a great growing interest in that same group of people in political activeness, in being engaged politically, in, in various causes of certain kinds. And the question is, the, the observation is, maybe this is a way to gain a sense of religious purpose in life when you reject God Maybe you have to fill that void with something else to give your life meaning. And I think we do that. I think there are counterfeit vines, counterfeit ways to, um, to try to find life. Jesus says, I am the true vine. He also says in that first verse that God is the gardener, which is kind of interesting. I would think if the disciples, you know, they may have been falling asleep at this point. It's hard to know. It was late. But if they were really hearing what he said, he says, I am grapevine, I'm the true vine, and God is the gardener. What an arrogant thing to say. God, the almighty God, serves my purposes. He nurtures the soil, he tills the soil, he prunes, he, he makes my, my vine grow healthy and grow well. But this is really the way that the, the church works. 
David has been talking a lot about living stones as an image of the church, that the church is not um, these walls. It's not this building. It's not a moribund, dead institution. It is you and me. We are the living church of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, um, God's church is a vine that blesses the world and all of us are branches growing out of that vine, providing fruit and blessing for the rest of the world. God cultivated Eden. God grew a garden in Eden for Adam and Eve. Makes perfect sense that God would be the one that cultivates this, this vine, this church that Christ, his son, gives life to. Let's look at verse 2, because there's this thing about fruit here, too. It says, verse 2, the father says that he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. The father cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he produces and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce even more. Fruit is a sign of good health in the plant. It's a sign of the plant fulfilling its purpose, isn't it? And so it is with us. God wants you and me to live a fruitful life. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to think, you know, my purpose in life is to have grapes hanging off of me, I suppose. And as um, Brenda said earlier, it's not exactly true, is it? We don't really think of ourselves as having grapes growing out of our ears or out of our elbows. But nevertheless, Paul said in Galatians 5.22 that through the Holy Spirit, if we are abiding in Christ, our lives do bear fruit, and they bear the kind of fruit that makes a big difference in the world and the church. For instance, Paul said, we have the fruit of love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are things we can't produce on our own, though we often try hard to do so. They are things that come to us from the life-giving sap of Christ running through our veins. And finally, we get to the word we're looking at today, abide. Having made all these claims about um, Jesus being the vine and that the church is this plant and that we're bearing fruit, he says in verse 4, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. He's asking us to enter into a relationship with him, isn't he? Remain in me. Join me. Live in me. In uh, many of the translations, you'll find the word remain in sometimes, uh, it's translated as remain in some cases and abide in other cases. I don't know that there's any other English words that are used. The words are kind of interchangeable, but I like the word abide because it's rooted in or related to the word abode in English, which means to make a home for yourself. And so when he talks about remain in me or, or abide in me, he's saying, make your home in me. Make your home in me. And just like the socio-Christians that I spoke about, Jesus is effectively inviting us to recognize that we need a home and we need to make that home with him.
But this illustration of the grapevine kind of strays away from our experiences of real life at this point, doesn't it? Because it doesn't really make any sense for the vine to urge the branches to remain attached. Branches in the grapevine don't have any freedom to move around, or if they did, they wouldn't last very long, would they? So what's he mean by this? Branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me, unless you abide in me. A couple of weeks ago, we took down our Christmas decorations. And we buy a real tree every year from one of the local vendors. And uh, it's a, an ordeal to get that tree because uh, my wife goes and picks the tree with us. And my wife um, is a very good judge of trees, let's put it that way. And, um, and so the tree has to, we go through it a lot, you know, and we're shaking this one and moving that one and comparing this one and that one. They have to have the right number of branches and the right fullness and the right shape and the right little top for our angel, you know. And, and they have to, most of all, they have to be really well alive, you know, so that they'll last throughout the holidays. And so we get our tree finally and we, um, and then we bring it home and we put it in a stand full of water and we pamper it. We check the water every day to make sure that it's got plenty of water. And, and you can go online, you know, and there are all sorts of magic remedies that you can use. You can put miracle Grow in there. You can put sugar in there. You can put uh, uh, Diet Coke in there. Any number of things to make the tree last longer. We've tried it all. But eventually, by the time January comes around, the branches are getting brittle and the, and the needles are falling off and the tree has clearly, clearly died. And the harsh reality is the tree was dead the moment somebody took a chainsaw to it and threw it in the back of a semi. It looked alive, but it was dead because it was severed from the roots. We bought this tree thinking it was a beautiful living tree, but really it was an ex-tree, a former tree, a, a dead tree walking. And we paid good money for it, too. (laughs) And I think, frankly, that was one of the profound lessons that I learned in those early years in Mexico because I had never been 100% all in with Christ. And I mean, even to this day, honestly, I'm not 100% all in with Christ. The socio-Christians, though, I learned were 100% in because they'd lost everything and they had no place else to go. But like a lot of us, you know, I kind of came and went from Jesus. I don't mean I abandoned my faith. I don't mean that. I was always sort of true to Christ. But then there were a lot of distracting things that would pull me away, a lot of things that looked more interesting, a lot of things where I would put the brakes on a little bit, tap the brakes and say, I'm going to go over here and look at this for a while or do that for a while. There are thousands of things that become so important to us that we break ourselves off from God's living vine And we go after them because remaining and abiding is hard. Jesus finally pulls all of this together in verse 5. So let's close with that today. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are a branch. You are a branch. I am a branch. We are all Christ's branches in this marvelous life-giving plant that he's created. Those who remain in me And I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can accept it. This simple metaphor perfectly describes our relationship with God our Father 
and Jesus, our Son, His Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. It also describes all of us. We're all branches. Your believing neighbor is a branch. The person sitting next to you is a branch. The Goshen Church is full of joyful, vibrant branches. Jesus is telling us that our lives have purpose, first of all. He tells us that we're not alone. We are all gathered together, attached to his vine, growing together. He's telling us that life is impossible unless we keep him at the very center of our hearts. Life is impossible unless we keep him at the very center of our hearts. So yes, we're in a time of transition and a time of uncertainty. We don't really know what's coming down the road, do we? Except that they're going to close the road off. (laughs) That much we know. We don't know what's coming down the road, but we know that God is good. We know that God has us. We know that God has this situation that we're in. And we know that God is faithful. And we know that God remains in us. He says that. I will remain in you. Please remain in me, he says. Stay rooted in him. Resist the temptations to chase after those counterfeit vines because they don't have anything to offer. Stay firmly anchored to the vine that supplies real life and everlasting life and abundant life. So the big idea again, the key to living in Christ is to abide to push the fibers of your faith deep into the vine and never let go. Let's pray together. Help us never to let go, Father. Uh, You know, we know that as we go through life, there are so many ways and circumstances where we lose hope, lose faith, lose trust, lose confidence. Wonder if you're there. Wonder if you're listening. Wonder if... You've really got us. And yet, Lord, you do. And you tell us, just abide. Just abide. I've got you. Learn from this. Trust me. Show us how to trust. Show us how to, in this time in our church, Father, when we don't really know what's coming, and we don't have the answers, yet you haven't changed You are here just as you were yesterday, last week, the week before, and you will be here again tomorrow. Your spirit is in our hearts and our lives, walking with us daily. You listen to us moment by moment. You walk with us. You advise us. You care for us. You love us. You fill us day by day, moment by moment. Nothing has really changed. Lord, let us not be afraid. Let us not be discouraged. Show us not, show us how to be expectant, feeling like we're in the midst of a God venture, anticipating what you're going to do. And at all times, Lord, help us to stay rooted in you so that we might bear fruit, good, sweet fruit that is a blessing to you and a blessing to your church. In Jesus' name, amen.